0: Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with
1: Vladan Babovich, a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the National University of Singapore. His work focuses on hydroinformatics, the development of water management through information technology and tools like AI and machine learning. In this episode, we discuss the unique challenges that Singapore faces in regards to water risk. Now, the small nation state is a pioneering model for water issues globally. Bobovich explains Singapore's flooding management systems, the concept of blue-green infrastructure, and the impacts of climate change on water concerns, stressing the urgency for innovative solutions amidst evolving environmental conditions. We hope
0: you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Vladan Bobovich. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Well, it's great to have you here. Welcome to um, rainy Singapore from sunny California. (laughs) It's just the start of a monsoon, so it will be wet until the end of your stay at NUS. Yeah, looking <laughs> forward to
1: <laughs> We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How'd you get into hydrology and how'd you end up at the National University of Singapore?
2: Well, hydrology or water in general, it uh, has been passion f- I, for the better part of my life. I, um, I, I thought I wanted to be an engineer, but I do not really like an engineering, you know, concrete and this sort of stuff. So... Uh, water was one of the topics which was always very interesting. So um it became a very natural choice of my studies, I think. And then um as the time went on I had a chance to uh visit and study various parts of the world. I I I actually have a degree from the University of Delft in Delft in the Netherlands and um yeah, it, it just grew and grew and grew. And while in Delft I I uh, I met uh, a certain professor, Michael Abbott was his name, who established a field called hydroinformatics, which was very new. This was a sort of late 80s or so, mid-80s. And uh, through, with his encouragement, I um, developed secondary interest in artificial intelligence. So this is it. it it's it, it, When you start talking about this, what happened in the past... It's, um, it, it seems like an easy choice, but it it was for me, very easy choice. I just follow what I wanted to do.
0: When did you start getting interested in AI?
2: Uh, at that time, the mid eighties, um, my father, who was a medical doctor, always said artificial intelligence. Are you ever going to land a good job, my son? (laughs) Uh, You know, and so I ended up doing my PhD in AI uh, together with a visionary professor, whom who who was very supportive of all this. And in a certain sense, maybe it was ahead of time. I don't know, but it was. So I, I work in AI since, yeah, a good 1989, I think.
0: What was the like, big difference between AI then and now? Because I think everyone just starts getting familiar with the term. Yeah.
2: Well, the the at that time, the big the big paradigm was something called expert systems, uh, where every, everything we know um, at that time the the, the, the belief system was that everything we know can be expressed in form of if then else rules, huh? uh, which which is to some extent correct, but this is what you know, when we express ourselves in in, in sort of in symbolic way, um it 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 it's only a very superficial part of our intelligence. You know, when you when you, you don't drive a car saying if I press the accelerator, then it reaches, I don't know, three thousand revolutions, then I press a clutch, then I shift again. You can explain yourself in a form of if-then-else rules, but you don't run those rules when you drive a car. At some stage, it becomes what we call sub-symbolic, below levels of symbols. So at that time, uh, most of AI was very much symbolic. We thought that whole knowledge of the word could be embodied in terms of if-then-else rules. Uh, Only later, maybe in mid... 90s uh, new paradigms came, like neural networks, which are still very much in use today. Uh, evolutionary computing, genetic algorithms, all sorts of other techniques um, uh, took over and they are dominant today. Uh, today, what, what what is special about AI today is uh, it's very easy to use if you know a little bit of Python and you know you have these great libraries, Keras, PyTorch. You can just write a simple script and suddenly you have this very powerful, um, very powerful AI uh, uh, modeling environments at your, at your disposal. So this is very different. Hence, it's accessible. Uh, many people can use it and, and play with it.
1: When did you start to see other
2: professionals and other professors start to adapt AI into their. Oh, very recently, very recently, may, maybe last three, five years, um, and and I really think this has to do with the fact that uh, it it is a very accessible paradigm these days. It it, you, it this was certainly not the case. Yeah. but what we are, um, what we see, and th- and this is one of the things that I really love. Uh, well, I'm very passionate about combining what we already know with AI. You see, there was somebody by name, Sir Isaac Newton, <laughs> and he came up with uh, Newton's laws, right? And uh, we still believe these laws are valid. Uh, so we don't need AI to find Newton's laws for us. We know that. And there are so many, you know, there are centuries of scientific advances that... Form a foundation to where we are today. Um, there are so many things we don't understand, but we should not reinvent the wheel. So I, I'm a deep believer of the fact that we have to com- find a ways of combining what we know, and then combine this with a machine learning with AI to push the boundaries even further. Um, ignoring. Uh, uh, centuries of development of human knowledge is just unwise you know it's not yeah and we should just not do this but there are you know some people that fall in a trap Oh, this is easy to use and let me use ai and you know anyway it's a long discussion we can talk about this for hours
0: yeah yeah so then kind of jumping in more towards what your research is could you maybe give us Some background on the global water risk and like what the current state of Mm. water usage is in the world yeah
2: so let me let me ask you a question okay how many liters of water did you use today
0: no idea what the exact number is
2: but what do you think i haven't showered yet so (laughs) five liters five liters what about yourself Uh, i assume like 20 20 well, the average person average person uses anything between one hundred and fifty and two hundred liters of water per day directly well, you know you flush your toilet, you drink water, you prepare your meal, you wash your clothes, so every day it's around two hundred liters mm-hmm. in some parts of the world, this can be very, very bad you know people water their loans uh it can go up to six hundred liters per person, per day, Wow, it's a lot of water, right? And, and, and it's so convenient, uh, it's in everybody's home, and you've pressed that button and water runs, and, but how do we get this water, right? How, how does it come to you, right? So there, there are two closely interlinked phenomena. First, you need a water that should be clean, unpolluted. Uh, then you need a lot of energy to transport the water to your home. Uh, You also need a lot of energy to purify, to to make it clean, make it readily available. But once you use the water, once you consume it, it it goes somewhere. And then before you return to the environment, it's very often treated so that it's not polluting the world as a bad place. So so there's this very tight connection between energy and water. We call it water energy nexus. Mm Uh, in which you know uh, water requires a lot of energy, but even if you want to produce energy in any form, you need water um, to create steam essentially in it. So uh, water is is, is is much more than natural resource. It's much more than natural resource. it is um, yeah, a matter of, of survival. and so so the global water crisis there there is, Water, there's too much and too little. If you remember, in September, October was it? In a short space of 11 days, we had eight massive global flooding events from Hong Kong to Libya to New York City to Italy to Bulgaria. Too much water. And then you come to the other parts of the world and there's too little. Water, uh, it's it's unevenly spread over the time and and it's polluted. Um, we can talk a lot about pollution, how pollution you have eutrophication, you have all these phenomena uh, that um, cause deterioration of water quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's first talk about quantity. And nowhere else, one of the questions is, how come I stayed here? You know, I came to Singapore for three months, and I'm 20 years later still here. I always thought Singapore will have an expiry date for me, it never came. Because this is one of, for water specialists, this is one of the most exciting places in the world. You know, Singapore is not water self-sufficient. Yeah. We import 40% of water from Malaysia, from province of Johor. Mm-hmm. Um, hence it, the sense is that this is a, this water is a matter of sovereignty, you know. If you look at the Second World War, when the British army was in Singapore, beginning of Second World War, they were expecting Japanese army to come from a sea, but no, they didn't come from a sea, they come over Mal- Malayan Peninsula, and the only thing they did was just to close a tap. And two weeks later... British army did not have water to drink, so they just surrendered. Uh, Singapore today imports for still 40% of water from Malaysia based on international contracts, uh, that are stable and, but this international contracts will go until 2060. Mm-hmm. So just another 35, 37
1: years. Is there efforts in Singapore to try to build greater water autonomy? Or are they trying? Yes, to there are certainly,
2: certainly efforts. So, so what we do in Singapore, we 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 always say we we uh, we we have a, a diversified system of water supply. Um, imported water is big dominant one very large dominant factor. Um, in in our water uh, supply portfolio. Um, but we have a system of reservoirs. So this is men, all all lakes, all reservoirs Singapore are man-made. There are 17 of them. I came here to help develop reservoir number 15, which is Marina Reservoir. And then with my team, we developed lakes number 16 and 17, Pungo and Sangun. Um, so this is a second source. The third source is what they call uh, new water, uh, new water is uh, uh, used water, so it's collected uh, uh, sewers that are treated to ultra-clean level, mm-hmm. that's a f- source number three. And source number four is desalination. We are island, we are surrounded by sea, we have lots of seawater. Um, but the problem really then comes to the energy. It dis- to desalinate, you need a lot of energy. So that's that water energy in excess, right? So to produce clean water, you need a lot of energy. It's very expensive water. Uh, it is approximately five or six times more expensive than new water. And new water is obviously much more expensive than rainfall that we collect and store in, in reservoirs. And then of course you have imported water. So so it, the four sources gives you, provides you with um, diversified portfolio. So, so the water situation is stable. Um, there are efforts to extend um, agreements with the province of Johor in Malaysia. So, This could go on beyond 2060. Mm-hmm. Um, but... If you see the water demand by 2060 our water demand will likely double because of industry because of population growth because of everything else right so uh, obviously these are the, the the forces that are not necessarily aligned makes makes the things a little bit more complicated right so that this is a problem of having, Potentially too little water. So you have to really very consciously deal with it. And in Singapore, this is pronounced, the water has always been probably at the top of the national agenda. So Lee Kuan Yew, who was the founding prime minister of Singapore, always said uh, in front of the water policy, all of the other policies have to stay on their knees because this is such an important a topic for 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 Singapore. And the water has always played a very prominent role. So for water guy, there's no better place on Planet Earth to be here, you know, but just deal with a problem which is uh, challenging, which is genuine, and when the people are very serious about preserving water in terms of quality and quantity.
0: Do people use Singapore as a template for solving other water issues elsewhere in the world?
2: singapore is very very highly regarded as as a, as a as a as a as a center for of water knowledge yes indeed um we in addition to orange county okay. california uh this is one of few places on uh, on, on in the world that relies on use of reused water this is a small but very subtle and very important message everywhere else in the world people talk about waste water here we talk about used water the water we use and then you can reuse it it's not waste you collect it you treat it and you return it now we don't that the new water is not supplied in uh, to to general population it's provided for industry. As I said, it's ultra-clean. It's uh, it's clean to the extent to which it has no minerals in it, it's just molecules of H2O. So it has very little, it, it doesn't have a taste. Um, and it's provided to industry. You know, wafers and industry buys this, whatever, because it's super-clean. Fantastic, right? Uh, only 2% of used oil, of new water is mixed with the natural lakes. Oh, wow. only two percent, and this is only in periods where, where where the lakes are not full, like they are now, um, because we you, you just supplement uh, water supply, if you will. So, but you know, it's it, it's it's a it's a bit of in human psyche. I'm I'm not going to drink that water. Yeah. Um, but it it, hence it's not direct. It's not provided for what we call direct potable use. Yeah, it's only indirect potable use, and only in very small percentage.
0: Yeah. So Orange County is like one of the only other places in the world that does this.
2: Orange Orange County has a a highly impressive uh, system. Uh, The difference between Orange County and Singapore, they they have um much more space. And th- there are also policies are different. For example, Orange County could buy a land around the river. Yeah, and they use a river, so they treat the water, they store it, and then they recharge the rivers, and then the rivers slowly uh, uh, recharge the groundwater. Mm. Uh, but well, Orange County is a great example of use of use the water
0: yeah because we grew up in orange county and the school that i went to as a kid i think did field trips to the plant that cleans the water
2: yeah yeah it's it's re- i mean of course i had to go there as well so yeah. i didn't see you <laughs> <laughs>
0: too small to be noticed back then yeah yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. how so, much uh, yeah go ahead, go ahead
1: how much of the water use in singapore is industrial versus residential
2: um it's around sixty-five thirty-five industrial sixty-five thirty-five residential. So there is a lot of, because wafers, uh, uh, our petro- petrochemical industry on Jurong Island, you know, there's lots of use and of, uh, needs for fresh water. Mm-hmm.
0: Do lot. you think that split kind of holds in a lot of places in the world?
2: Not necessarily. Because Singapore is small and compact. Um, and industry such that it requires water treatment, but there are you know, we don't have agricultural production, and you will have a lot of places in the world that would need agricultural, but they will probably rely on a natural precipitation and other means of water supply rather than uh, using uh, uh, a treated water for that. Sure, but you know, but this is one part. You know, it, it's a fear. Of not having enough water, and at the same time we have too much water sometimes. Sometimes the floods, right? And that is universal, because you know, as the cities grow, we change um, we change cities in in a way that uh, very little water goes into the groundwater Mm -hmm. because cities are covered with asphalt, with concrete. So when it rains, this water quickly goes to the drainage system, and the drainage system evacuates water in order to prevent flooding.
0: Because some of your work has been on managing flooding, correct? Yes. So could you describe like what some of those systems are? And like,
2: Okay. Um, so in early days after independence, so second half of sixties, Singapore flooded regularly. It was very normal to walk along Bukitima Road, Danian Road, and after the rain you just walk into knee deep water. Very normal. Uh so Singapore then went to develop a very extensive system of drainage. So you see you see you have seen the drains, they're big, large and there are lots of underground drains that you don't see.
0: Some of the craziest I've seen
2: so, but the the purpose of these drains w- was to alleviate the flooding problem, right to to make it smaller. So, what did these drains do? They essentially send the water they evacuate the water very fast. So this is like super highway for water. This is, it just goes quickly to the sea. Today we have around eight thousand kilometers of drains in Singapore. eight thousand kilometers of drains. And they're all built and designed to minimize minimize flooding risk. There's also, in the past, was related to health because the stagnant water means mosquito, mosquito breeding means dengue, you know, so. And Singapore has solved its flooding problem beautifully. But the problem is big. You know, the city, again, put yourself um, it's maybe interesting at the time of independence. this country had two million population of two million people and now it's five and five point five getting close to six million people um and these extra three and a half four million people that now live here they all need housing, they need roads they need and this is all our natural environment has been altered, it's now what once was pristine forests where it rains and the water goes down into the groundwater, now it goes into the drainage system almost instantaneously. So this is not unique to Singapore, this is everywhere else in the world. You go to San Francisco or San Diego or Tokyo. You have these problem of a fast urban runoff uh, that eventually has to lead to flooding of a sort, right? And we are not we don't have a space to increase from eight thousand to twelve thousand kilometers of drains or six you know it, it, or make them wider because you know this is still densely populated a uh, place right so 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 we have to find a different ways of dealing with too much water um, while at the same time dealing with too little water so another question question for you okay i'm sorry i'm a teacher i have to ask questions go right? for it it rains a lot in singapore right yeah so how come do we are so water stressed uh, the fact is that singapore is the 10th most water stressed country on planet earth There are only nine countries that have a more difficult water situation than Singapore. It's a fun fact. It's a fact. Okay. How come? It's, I mean, it rains. It rains frequently. We have more than 200, 220 rainy days in a year. So it rains two-thirds of the time.
0: I assume most of it's not collected. And-
2: yeah, but it's still there, right? So so why, why are we not collecting it? Don't have room to store it. Fantastic. We have no space to store the groundwater. Because again, small country, 720 square, 720 square kilometers, five and a half million people. If you then say that... There's a central catchment area where nobody lives around Macritchie and Upper Pierce Reservoir. There are some military training grounds where nobody lives. So if you were to remove all of this, you will get very close to average density of your population of ten thousand people per square kilometer. You know, you, you can imagine one kilometer. It's not a very long distance, right? Mm. And in other direction, other kilometers, and then you put ten thousand people. It's a lot of people, and they all need so there's this conflicting interest in land use. Huh? Everybody wants a house to live in. Every, you know, everybody wants to drive a car. Everybody wants, but we don't have a space for water because, you know, reservoirs, nobody lives in a reservoir, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So finding solution to these things is is quite an interesting problem, I should say, right?
1: And then, so this might be like a silly question, but within cities where it's mainly concrete and the water doesn't get to replenish the actual groundwater in the land, is there a benefit in places like Singapore or like New York that are mainly concrete? Is there a benefit to replenishing the groundwater itself beneath yes. the city?
2: There's a great so in in um, the prevailing interest these days is in what we call blue green infrastructure. Uh, so unlike the drains, you know, the, the drains are really designed to get rid of the water, to minimize flooding. And once the water is in that drain, I mean, it has only one way to go. It mm-hmm. goes to the sea. Uh, so you need to slow down the water and, and blue-green infrastructure, and you may have heard the words uh, sponge city. There's are cities that are designed differently that when it rains, it sort of Collects water; it slowly percolates and goes into the into the groundwater. So there is a, there is a, indeed a lot of interest in collecting water and storing it underground mm-hmm. in, in form of groundwater. Uh, but also, with a technical term is uh, managed artificial recharge (M.A.R.), where you collect water and then you help it to recharge faster, to go underground much faster. Mm -hmm. So this is a big, big, big thing. Um, Because climate change is going to make all of this stuff much more challenging because, yeah, it's in Singapore, we, we are likely going to see more intense rains. And when you, when you think about it, right, uh, you've seen some intensive rainfalls. Uh, but they're likely to go even more intense, and if you couple this with urbanisation, meaning more concrete, more asphalt, it's it's a it's a fantastic ingredient for localized urban urban flooding. You know, because no. one degree centigrade uh, increase in temperature enables atmosphere to store 7.5% more moisture, vapor. So if the temperature of Singapore, in Singapore, were to increase by four degrees, it means that atmosphere will have, will be able to store 30% more water. But if you have 30% more water in the atmosphere, that water has to come down in the form of rain, which runs a risk that our precipitation, our rainfall intensity will increase by 20%, 30%, which is tremendous, tremendous impact. Because, you know, what, again, 8,000 kilometers of drains? Are we going to make them bigger? We can't. So we really need to start looking for very innovative ways of dealing with this. How much
0: rain does Singapore get?
2: 2,400 liters of water per square meter per year. It's around 200 liters per square meter per month. Uh, I'll I'll give you uh, London, if if I mention London, it rains in London all the time. They get lots of rain, right? Well, London gets 650 liters per square meter per year. So our three months, three and a half months is what London gets in a year.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
2: Uh, And
1: What are some of the leading... I guess, solutions to this problem? Like are people looking at different materials for cement or like what are some of these
2: options? So so a, a big option now, and we are all getting very excited with, is something which people call building with nature. Uh, you see, engineering solutions of 60s and 70s, when we designed those big drainage systems, right? This was a good solution for that time. But now we are reverting back to the basics to say, hey, you know what, uh, there, there is um, uh, uh, The drains need not be concrete covered drains. Maybe they could still look like nature-inspired solutions where we have uh, plants and vegetation and what have you um, so it, 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 it looks nice, it performs uh, reasonably well. And also vegetation cleans the water. I see, all the stuff that we don't like to have in the water, like uh, nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen and etc., et etc, cetera, et etc, cetera, et cetera, actually, plants need that to grow. So you can, by reintroducing um, vegetation in our systems, uh, you are also cleaning what improving water quality in low energy regime. So it's not sent to water treatment plant to improve um, its quality, but actually every meter of the flow in the drain helps improve water quality. So this is a big, big area of work now, right?
1: Yeah. We talked to someone when we first started the podcast. I was trying to use mycelium, like mushroom roots, in yes. their drainage from agricultural areas. Yes. And it been really promising.
2: Yes. Two things. First, um, root systems or plants, they, they of course make this, uh, are more porous. So it restores percolation. But then you have a, a biofilms microbial organisms uh, I'm told I'm engineer I don't know but I'm told that there is there is more biomass on planet Earth in microbial life than in microbial life in all plants and and us and, and taken together and if you just think about metabolic rates of activity in microbial life as you realize how, that this is really a factory of how you can improve so the films that yet formed on plants, as they grow, they're actually very powerful ways of improving water quality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh. And then I guess going into your specific research a little bit more, could you explain hydroinformatics as a topic?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's, a, it's it's, an obvious, easy question, and yet at the same time, somewhat, a somewhat complicated topic. As I mentioned, I, I had a visionary professor as my mentor who developed this field of expertise um, and it was really meant about information technology for aquatic environment, in the broadest possible sense. Uh, from from um, computer modeling of the flows uh, to databases, and geographic information systems, and AI, and these sort of topics. So it was really, none of us, in all honesty, is better computer scientist than fully trained computer scientists. Uh, but we hydrology have have learned, t- to some extent, Adopted these techniques and adapted them for our need in, in water management. M- maybe it's easier for us to learn a little bit about computer science than it is for computer scientists to learn about water. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is how the field evolved. Uh, now it's a it's a very it has its own journal that exists. Oh my God, I don't know twenty plus years. It has a its conference series. Uh, and it always looks for new ways of dealing with water management mm-hmm. so yeah I, I have developed interest for example in monitoring rain rainfall using CCTV cameras mm-hmm Sounds weird, right?
0: Could you define what those are? Because in the US, we don't really talk about them like that.
2: Okay, so CCTV camera. People install CCTV cameras all over the place. I mean, if you if you come if you come to if you come to next time you enter in metro station here in Singapore, just lift your head and you will see there are probably twenty or thirty cameras just on that station. Um. And the intended purpose is different, you know, to monitor activities. Uh, what what this particular technology that I got interested in is, it subtracts the background, so it anonymizes video images, and it just looks at the rainfall streaks. Uh, and obviously, the wider the rainfall streak, streak it is, the bigger the, the raindrop. It is, right? And so using some mathematics and pre-processing, you can calculate how many raindrops do you have, what is their size, and you add them together and it's your rainfall intensity. The idea is that every CCTV camera, for which I don't have to pay anything, they're here. They're installed. Somebody else sank the cost to install these cameras. All I have to do is just get the, the video feed, which I anonymize. I, I don't care about faces or whatever is there. I just like to see my fields of falling raindrops and to measure this. So, so if, you, if, you, if you just think, uh, there are probably 30, 40, 50,000 cameras in Singapore alone. These are all my free rainfall monitoring stations.
0: Do you have access to like, the video? At the
2: moment, this. this our algorithm is used on half of CCTV cameras operated by our National Water Agency in Singapore.
0: Was it hard to get access to it?
2: No. Uh, it's, 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 it, well, we started... So our water agency, National Water Agency, POB, is is really forward-looking agency. They're very open for innovation. So we did some small uh, in-house research project uh, showed the promise, and they said, okay, maybe we want to do something together. Let's do some tests with the three or four cameras, which we did. And they said, oh, this looks great. Why not Why Not, not put it on 150 cameras, which we did. And then next thing you know, they run it on half of their cameras, which is great, which is fantastic. And, but but what I, what I want to argue is that, so Singapore has, again, another question, how many traditional rainfall Gauges are there in Singapore? Twenty. Three hundred. Seventy five. Um, <laughs> Seventy five. How many of them are in Jakarta? <laughs> Seventy four. Five. Only five. And these are not real-time operated. Somebody will have to sit on a little moped and drive and see how much rain it fell on that particular spot. There are only five. And it's not that people in Jakarta don't care about rainwater. They do care a lot about rainwater uh, and floods. But, you know, society has different priorities and they have to be addressed. How many CCTV cameras are in Jakarta? tens of thousands, so suddenly you have this possibility of accessing the data, I call this opportunistic sensing. Somebody has placed an instrument for different purpose, CCTV camera, and I'm repurposing that computer vision information into rainfall intensity, and I'm too informed for flooding uh we currently work with the second largest uh telco in Singapore, star hub mm-hmm. uh on using the data uh on signal strength between telecommunication base stations antennas right? they have eight hundred antennas that are backbone of our uh telecommunication uh and that signal when it rains that signal gets weaker and we found a way of of relating the strength of that signal with rainfall again i don't i don't have to pay for cameras they're there they're there for us to talk over telephone to exchange data
0: did you come up with these ideas of using the the cameras or signal strengths
2: uh, yes, and but there, there. You know, look, you you can't say, oh, this is all my sure. my, my thing. But there, there are.
0: Was like, your lab one of the first to do? Sorry, it. yes, yeah. yes,
2: yes, and all this stuff with the uh, with telco as well. There were people that, they were using this, but nobody managed to bring this to this scale. We are now using it, so so it's it's a confluence of uh, visionary partners uh, like National Water Agency here. That is willing to test, to work with you,
1: mm-hmm.
2: to test new techniques, and of course you have to show that this brings value. And then if you do it once, twice, three, five times, then you know it becomes really a relationship where uh, this becomes a living lab. You know, and this is what Singapore says they want to be living lab to test some of these things.
0: So then, what does like the telecom company get out of working with you guys? Um, or just help it out? Two
2: two things. Uh, of course, we're not getting this for free. We are paying somebody for these data, but it's a it's small fee. Don't tell them that. Cut this. <laughs> it's a really expensive edition. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also part of corporate social responsibility. The second largest telco in, in the country, shouldn't you be doing something about climate change? Shouldn't you be doing something about prote- you know, in, in, enhancing resilience against flooding, right? And 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 they are really, and, and, and I have to give them a full credit because they're really good people uh, with, with their hearts in the right place, that have decided, perhaps took a risk to some extent, to work with us uh, to actually develop this technology and make it available. And again, Let's go back to Jakarta. Are there mobile phones in Jakarta? Plenty. Plenty. You go to really rural India. They may not have a hydrometeorological network, but they will have mobile phones, right? So, So this is what makes me very excited about bringing the latest technology to advanced water management. So this is perhaps a long answer to your question, what is hydroinformatics? but it is about opening avenues of processing and information and data in a, in a way that enhances our water management. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And then what are your goals for how this water, like rainfall intensity, like that data, how is it going to be used and how can that help the people?
2: Well, uh, you are probably familiar with the fact that there are parts of California where people can't buy flood insurance anymore yeah. because the house, the housing is being flooded and they live in the floodplains. Why did they build a house in floodplains in the first place? How come nobody told them? Don't build a house there, it floods. So you have to understand rainfall to understand a flood, to advise people. The damages due to floods Loss of life due to, just remember what happened in Libya. Do you remember the floods two months ago, was it? No. Hong Kong, very well developed economy. New York City, what was the damage? economic damages? Again, loss of life, even greater, You can't, you know, we, because we can't express this in, in dollar terms, right? So providing this information, helps people plan uh for the future better, right? How is the
1: accuracy with like the telephone signal modeling or the CCTV oh, yeah. compared to the standard traditional?
2: I mean not 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 comparable, I would I, I would argue. This is this is uh light years ahead of more traditional. You see the traditional ways of monitoring grain Rainfall is an instrument called tipping bucket. You know, it's sort of in 19th century invent- invention that gives you very precise information about rainfall on that spot mm-hmm. where the instrument is placed. So this tipping buckets, rain gauges, they give you a 75-point observations. But if you have a Tel- telco base stations well didn't i just say it, it was 800 of them mm-hmm. plus you have a lines between them so it's not point it's a line so the whole country is sort of triangulated crisscrossed by this line yeah. uh, so you have a higher spatial resolution you have a data that collected if you will even at a range of milliseconds, if you care. You can collect the data in milliseconds. This is a completely new paradigm. And again, scaling this up in places where people can't afford, it's too distant, it's too expensive, it's too, if you go to Manila, yeah. you go to Davao, but you know, you go to places, Papua New Guinea, a hydrometeorological network is not the first thing that, is on the top priority list of some places in the world because they have other more pressing issues. Wouldn't it be fantastic that this technology helps instantaneously address some of these issues?
0: Have you started to use it elsewhere in the world?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, we are currently using it, we are starting to use it in, in Indonesia, mm. uh, Vietnam. Uh, we are trying to start using it in Bangkok it, it, but it's an effort you know it, it, it's it's technology works and this is you 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 deal with more socioeconomic rather than technological challenges because you know you have to find a good telco a good partner to work with them and so forth and so forth so you, you're dealing with other non-technology issues right uh to make sure this technology is applied
0: And then how are some of the newer technologies like like the more advanced AI and machine learning being implemented in this data processing?
2: So the data... So what you are receiving is a raw signal uh, of attenuation of how much power is lost between two points. Uh, You can try to derive laws that uh, that re- relate to signal strength attenuation with rainfall, for example. But these are not necessarily well understood things to do, so we're trying to describe it using equations. But we also more and more are able, and better and better able to use AI to find this approximation for us. And that that can, every new observation gives you more data, more data can be learned on the fly, so we can create our own chat rain or whatever you wanna call it, (laughs) GPT, yeah.
1: And so if the prediction models are getting stronger with AI and we know more accurately how much rain is falling, what is that used for mainly is it used to indicate policy? It like Dep-
2: Dep- depends what you want to do. So if you're a farmer, obviously you want to manage your produce, right? Uh, what is a good time for you to um, apply pesticides? You don't want to apply pesticides before the rain because if it rains, it's all gone. Uh, if you are a traffic agency, Obviously, well, rainfall affects the traffic big way, and you may want to re-divert traffic from areas that are affected by it. Policy is also very important, um, but this really falls more towards the government agencies that that, that needs to decide decide what infrastructure needs to be built, drainage system capacity, blue green, you know, all, all of this stuff gets to form one coherent picture. So this is. Where everything comes together, um, so policies are typically what government institutions should should be doing, defining. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, whereas you know, guys like me, academia or companies are trying to implement this and, and help them do this, right?
1: Yeah. Who are like the major, I guess, players within the weather forecasting? Space like is that government organization no, private? Like- tradition.
2: Well, it depends where you find yourself. Uh, there is in, in the United States there is something called NOAA Na- National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, but you also have IBM Weather Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have uh, Dark Sky. You know your Apple Weather. Um, there's lots of interest in 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 this as as a business. Mm-hmm. Every country will have its own hydrometeorological organization, but it's becoming more and more uh, more widely used um, outside governments. For many businesses affected by the rain, Mm -hmm. you know, how much is your Uber surcharge if you book it during the heavy rain? Four times? Eight times? Yeah. So would you like to know when to take your taxi? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a, there's so logistics, first mile, last mile delivery, food delivery. So many human activities are affected by the environmental conditions.
0: Yeah, And I think this type of conversation is great because it brings some of those back to the forefront of our mind because, Especially nowadays, most people are so detached from what goes into all the things they interact with on a daily basis from...
2: Hence, I come to the last question. Water is not an inherently sexy topic. <laughs> I, 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 I'm i insulted. <laughs> Am I changing your mind a little?
0: We didn't need to visit him. <laughs> uh, But I think just so many people with... Everyone's like, oh, water. We, it's since it's so readily available. When anything's that present in your life, it kind of goes to the back of your mind
2: until the moment it stops. Yeah. being there.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then, do you see like the the world having more and more water issues coming up as like global warming intensifies?
2: I I really think so. Yes, I really think so. I I think the issue of having too much, too little, too much water, too little water is going to come. Uh, sooner rather than later, uh, I, I see uh, uh, that many people are getting serious and concerned about it. And c- climate is accelerating. There's definitely climate change accelerating, all of that. Um, water quality is going to be a massive, massive, massive issue. You know I mean we we apply so many fertilizers uh uh but if you the uptake of fertilizers by produce is actually small it's a 15 percent 85 percent just goes and it ends up in our water bodies and this is why we have lots of eutrophic water bodies with lots of smelly pea soup looking like lakes. Um, This is, yeah, the the water quality uh, and too much, too little is going to be a massive thing.
0: Are you doing research on like water quality? Yes. And is it primarily just focused on Singapore or are you like extrapolating that out?
2: Well, you know, I'm a guy, so I'm not a water quality guy per se, but I know something about water quality. So, So for Singapore we have I uh, together with my team we have developed a national water quality monitoring and modeling system of the entire coastal waters of Singapore we have eight buoys, very large boys you can think of them as a, as, a, as a wet chemistry labs placed in yeah. the sea they float they, they continuously take water samples and analyze them and then by means of t- telemetry, they send the data to our computer systems where we then take this data, combined it with meteorological forecasts to continuously produce 72 hour forecasts of water quality anywhere around Singapore. 88 water quality parameters.
0: And then you're producing a forecast and then does your system like check how accurate it was?
2: Yeah, yeah. oh yes, of course.
0: And It's like very accurate?
2: Very accurate it is. Yeah. I mean, Uncertainties, of course, this is a Singapore national system, it's called system Neptune, but we we don't know, for example, what happens at every instance in Malaysia or Indonesia. So there are some uncertainties of what comes from further places, places are far further away. But within the national confines, yes, it's it's very, very good. And mm-hmm. this is this is used by National Environment Agency here in Singapore to as I said, produce any spot of the coastal waters in Singapore uh, to produce uh, uh, water quality of 88 water quality parameters. It's it's amazing from E. coli to trivial stuff such as temperature to, you know.
0: Are you able to measure microplastics?
2: Uh, No, not really because for microplastics you you would have to have grab samples, grab samples you have to collect them. Yeah. But we have, as I said, uh, everything else that is measurable, from hydrocarbons to to uh, nitrogen, phosphorus.
1: And for water management, like looking towards the future, do you think there's more opportunity in building more efficient systems that we already have regarding management, or new technologies, like different types, of like desalination plants? Do you think there's more of a space for new tech that's more efficient, less energy uti- like use? or is it more so individual energy consumption, industrial energy consumption, changing those patterns of paper?
2: I mean, it's a great question. Uh, the technology that we uh, use can and should improve. There are there I happen to know a company in Southern California called Energy Recovery, and all they do is is recover the waste or suboptimally used energy in water treatment plants. Uh, but I think the greater potential is societal. So we just talked about how much liters of water you use today. Now imagine if everyone were to make an effort to use, let's say, 10 liters of water per day less. This is 10 flushes of toilet, 10. You know, one small flush is 3.3 liters. You know, It's all gallons. so half, you know, 3.3 liters. Three flushes, 10 liters. Five and a half million people times 10, that's 55 million liters of water today, times 365 days. It's a lot of water, so it's actually this is what we often call here. This is our next national water tap. In addition to the four, this is a fifth, and this is just being conscious. You know, if I brush my teeth, do I leave the water running or do I, you know, these small things. Society save with energy. You know, shall I turn all of these lights out or not? Can I be a little more conscious? So, so I think this is. The big, big, big thing that actually comes from generation like you, you know this is where you know if if I if being a lecturer here, I think there are two things of which your generation is concerned and 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 excited about is sustainability and AI, data science, yeah. <laughs> Hence, hydroinformatics, <laughs> the sexiest water subject alive. You know, what do you mean it's not sexy topic? <laughs> <In my office. laughs>
0: what, do you, what do you think is going to really help the places that are maybe more arid and really struggling for rainfall and just water resources as a whole?
2: A groundwater. When it, when it rains, it rains, capture the water, put it on the ground. Because if he stays on the surface, he will evaporate.
0: Yeah, but what about places like the, the the deserts where it's really not raining much? Like, what do you think is going to be most important? Is it transporting water to them? Because I know California does a huge aqueduct system. Is there going to be desalination? Like, how?
2: No, well, well, you you know, California really struggles with the snowpack. Yeah. you know that's gone, and then there's a massive almond. Industry, Even going race. yeah. I mean, you know, so again, it's a policy. the The biggest water consumer in 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 California is is are these plantations, and the water comes from snowmelt. And if snow, so the climate change, you get less snow. What is going to be the end result? I mean, is the, are these plantations really going to survive? No. No. So. Um, sustainable take as much as you need you know uh, you can't really uh, overproduce something at the cost of something else sooner or later it will come and haunt you so these are arid places indeed and in some places it's just uh, unfortunate enough not to have it I, I don't know what, what what can I advise to uh, uh, you know Saharan Africa No, but it rains it, it rains in a friend of mine was in Dubai the other days, sent me a video of flash floods in Dubai.
0: Isn't their soil like, too dry to really like uptake it well?
2: No, this is that, was really
0: uh, Or is it just does it soak at all?
2: No, no. Th- so this was really in a city of Dubai, oh, okay. which is again like here, yeah. covered by asphalt and concrete and everything else. So the water did not but if it rains in a you you can have a mechanism of capturing the water and then recharge it, manage artificial recharge, storing it underground, and then it becomes a part of your underground aquifer that you can extract sure. three months later, four months later when you need it. Yeah.
1: And then I think as we wrap up here, do you have any other advice for students?
2: Enroll in water management course. Yeah. Is there any particular one at NUS you recommend? Hydroinformatics course that I teach. <laughs> <laughs> it starts in a short f- few weeks. Perfect. No, no, no. No, no, it's a, a look, a, a climate and climate and water and this interface with digital is very exciting area. Very, very, and it gives you a very meaningful career. Yeah. And then it will be in hot demand. So I would hope also leading to a good financial recognition. Good job.
1: Wonderful. Thanks Thank so you so much.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for stopping.
1: To continue your learning, go to our website, DiscoveringAcademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.